All right. Hey, uh, good to see you guys. I love, love, love being outdoors. Um, I, so, so some of you guys are new this morning. I met some, some new people here this morning, and you're probably like, why, why are we meeting outside? Especially if you got here late and you didn't get the shade. You're probably like, why? We've got a building 100 yards from now that has the AC on like right now. Why are we sitting out here? And, uh, and so I always, it's always helpful for us to be reminded of why every June now, uh, this has kind of become our yearly tradition to meet outdoors. This really began three years ago. And so three years ago, when COVID forced the, the, the church to gather indoors, really forced all of society to really go inside and away from one another, uh, we met as a, as a church, if you remember, for about three months uh, virtually. And uh, as, as great as that was and as thankful as we are for the opportunity, uh, there was something missing. Uh, the family of God, the people of God, um, which I consider you are my family, uh, my brothers and sisters, uh, we weren't able to see one another. And, and so there was something lacking, something missing there. And so our first time back together after being kind of set apart for a while was was in June of 2020. And I still remember that Sunday morning. It was just, it was like a family reunion. We hadn't seen each other in like 13 weeks. And, uh, and so we started this kind of like this yearly tradition of let's meet outdoors um, every June to, to remind us of the, the, the church and how it matters that we gather together. Uh, this morning, I uh, sent my kids uh, away for a week of camp and uh, is happy and is excited. Amy and our, I are for maybe a, a, a little bit quieter week in our home. Uh, there's still a little bit of sadness as I saw Max and Stella kind of driving off in the bus this morning for a week, right? So uh, that, that's a reminder even to me as I was sitting there thinking like, man, family belongs together, right? And when there's distance, there just feels like there's something, there's something missing. And so that's why we want to meet outdoors, not only just because it's beautiful, uh, but also to remind us of the significance and beauty of the church. And so hopefully that's always a, a yearly reminder to us of, of when we gather, this, this matters. This matters what we're doing. So as we, as we dig in, though, this morning, I love also going through the Psalms during the summer. So I love Psalm 53. It's a heavier Psalm, but it's a, it's a good Psalm for us to, to, to pay attention to this morning. So as we jump into it, let me ask you guys a question. Have you ever uh, picked up an old family photo album, photo book, and you just start scrolling through the pages and then find yourself hours and hours later still just kind of looking through pictures and reminiscing, right? As soon as we begin kind of walking down memory lane, story after story begins to emerge, right? Like we just start sharing stories and our minds start uh, remembering all these fun times and good memories. And we love to share those stories and remember them and invite others into that joy with us. Um, uh, whenever our family gets back from family vacation, our kids love to spend that like next week just scrolling through all the pictures, all the videos from that previous week because they want to just relive those moments again and again. Uh, a few weeks ago here at CCA, uh, at the graduation night for high school, a bunch of alumni gathered together uh, beforehand for dinner. And, and at the tables were all the old past yearbooks uh, from all the years here at the school. And, and so at each table, as I was walking by each table, uh, there was just people just gathered around, just going through these yearbooks, turning page after page and just laughing and telling story after story of their years in high school, right? Like these moments in our lives, they, they remind us of our story. Uh, they remind us of our past. They remind us of the good times, but they also sometimes bring to light the difficult times that we walk through. They remind us of where we've come from and, and hopefully how we've grown and how we've matured. Like knowing our past, um, knowing our history, knowing our story 
actually helps us better understand our present reality. So, so how did we get to where we are right now? How do we respond or why do we respond to certain situations the way that we do? Uh, when, why do we act a certain way or why do we live a certain way or why do we think a certain way or respond certain ways, right? Our stories, our, our history kind of sheds light on that. Like we, we respond because like, oh, that's because this happened in my past. That's probably why I responded that way. Psalm 53 this morning is, is kind of, to some degree, the story of us. It's the story of, of really human history since the fall in Genesis 3. It's a way of, of helping us understand who we are now. It's not, a, it's not a pleasant story. Our past, of our human history past, right? It's not one filled with goodness and glory, but really it's one filled with sin and filled with brokenness and filled with rebellion. See, the Bible is God's revelation to us, revealing who he is, but also at the same time revealing who we are and, and why everything in this, this world seems disjointed, why everything in this world seems crooked. And, and, and not just the world as if we're the, the, the perfect image or the shining beacon of what humanity should look like, but it's also reminding us and, and sharing with us and telling us and reminding ourselves, like, th there's something broken within us, right? So, so our bodies age, right? We, we can't do the same things we used to do when we were younger with ease, right? Like, like we, we find ourselves, at least I'm beginning to find myself, I'm only 40, and I'm finding myself, like, like grunting anytime I stand up or sit down, right? Like, like anybody ever do that? You just, like, get up from the seat and you're just kind of like, ugh. Like that, like you're like, where'd that come from? Right? I used to do that. Now I'm just getting up and I'm like grunting over standing. I mean, uh, let's, let me ask you this. Any parents in here uh, ever need to get something in their home, either upstairs or downstairs, and you walk to the edge of the steps, you look at them, you're either looking down or looking up, and you're like, I don't I know. And you call one of your kids, hey, go get what I need, because you're like, I don't want to, I want to walk up the 13 steps and then back down the steps again, right? Am I the only one? Right. Uh, we experience. Right. Like that's that's something even there we laugh about. But like that's reminding us like something's gone wrong, like something's aging in us. It's wearing down in us. Right. We experience suffering and pain in this world. We make selfish decisions which harm others and, and, and ourselves. Right. We're flawed. And whether you're a Christ follower or not, we all recognize probably this reality with, within us and, and around us. And, that, and because of that reality, every person then seeks to develop this, this worldview or this narrative to help them come to grips or to understand the reality into which they live. And to understand why things are the way that they are, why they are the way that they are. Like we're attempting, humanity's attempting to make sense of it all. And so here we have Psalm 53. Psalm 53 is a, a mirror image of Psalm 14. If you have your Bibles, you can flip to Psalm 14 and you could follow along almost word for word with me today as well. Right? Like why would the same Psalm be in the Psalter twice? David most likely wrote Psalm 14 when he was younger and most likely wrote Psalm 53 and when he was older. And I think it's in here because what's being said matters greatly. And that God's word is attempting to help us understand our story. 
to understand why things are the way that they are, who God is, how can we arrive to a place of peace and to a place of joy and a place of eternal hope. Because like I said, we all, everybody desires to know why things are the way that they are in this life. Why is there hardship? Why is there suffering? Why is there pain? And here we have in, in our laps this morning, a, a, a word from our creator of the universe who's in a way calling us to come sit down at his feet while he tells us, here's how we got here. Here's how you got here. Here's why things are broken. Here are the dangers that are out there in this world and how you can avoid them. And, and here, here's how you can find eternal bliss, eternal life, eternal joy. Like, would we not want to pause and listen to this? It's going to be difficult news to hear, but it's a harsh reality. But the, the truth is, right, the truth is always the most loving thing to speak to a person because truth is going to lead to life if we'll hear it and if we'll respond to it. And so the human story is understood in, in four different ways. The story moves from, from understanding who we are, how we in, instinctually respond to the world around us, it moves to the consequences of such actions and it ends with really the only hope humanity has for redemption. And so understanding our story begins, number one, with understanding our default setting. That's where the psalm begins. Understanding our default setting as human beings. In verse one, it says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so in that first verse, there's, there's two words to key in on. The word fool and the word heart. The word fool here uh, isn't referring to someone who is unintelligent or just some, some type of goof-off slacker. That's not what is a fool here is referring to. Like What scripture says is that a fool is someone who is within their heart, within their inner being, they live in such a way that's denying the existence of a God whom they will be accountable to. That's the biblical definition of a fool. A fool is someone who lives however they want, does whatever they want, acts however they want, thinks however they want, because they have placed themselves at the center of the universe and they believe themselves to be accountable to no one. Now, lest we begin to think that this phrase refers only to the atheists out there, the ones who deny that there is a God, this phrase also refers, I believe, or emphasizes a, a functional or a, even a, a practical atheism, meaning this, that people can say all they want with their mouths, with all they want with their words. They can say, yeah, I believe there's a God. People can say they love God. People can say, yes, I, I, I follow God, but, but their heart believes something else. And because of that, their life lives something completely opposite from what their words say. And so they live a functional or practical atheism where they are denying that the existence of a God with their very lives because they live in clear violation to God's command for his creation. This is why the word heart in verse 1 is so important to key in on. Right? The, the heart is the, the controlling center of a person's life. So you can, you can say whatever you want, but if your life and your actions don't back up those words... Your actions are actually revealing your true belief, what your heart holds to and what your heart fully and truly believes. 
And so verse 1 then continues to expand upon this, this default setting of humanity by saying that, that our God-denying hearts result in, in corruption and result in this pursuit of wickedness and selfishness. Verse 1 ends with this blanket statement of really all humanity that's repeated again in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3 when he says there's, there's none who does good. In verse 2, when we begin to see that verse, we see foolishness begin to contra- begin contrasted with, uh, with wisdom. So the, the fool is the one, the Bible defines as one who denies the existence of God, lives as if there is no God that they're accountable to. Right? But, the, but the wise we begin to see in Scripture are, are those who, who do seek God, who seek his guidance, who live under his good reign and rule. The wise are those who, who live with the awareness that God is the creator. That God is the sustainer of all that there is. And they, they live with this awareness that, that I am accountable to God the King. So, so wisdom does not exist without God, is what scripture would say. That wise living, right? Living which would lead to human flourishing, to joy, to, to happiness, right? Like that, that type of life is not found apart from God. In fact, Scripture would say it's only found in this pursuit of the knowledge of God, knowing who God is. Proverbs 9.10 would say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So, so what this means is that wisdom is impossible to attain or receive without a pursuit and a knowledge of God. That wisdom is living life as it was intended to be lived by its creator, which ultimately then results in joy. Doesn't mean there's an absence of suffering. Doesn't mean there's an absence of pain. It just means that through suffering, through pain, as we look to God, the creator, who says, here's how to walk through and persevere through this, that you find a deep abiding joy in the midst of suffering and pain. That's the wise life right there. The fool would say, there is no God. I don't want to be accountable. The fool is going to see suffering as something only to avoid, something only to get away from. Because that ruins their happiness, ruins their life. And so a, a, a foolish person is going to live with this way of saying there is no God. And so, so these questions then arise in, in our lives like, okay, how do we respond then to adversity? And how we respond to difficulty? And how do we respond to pain and betrayal? And how do we respond to suffering? And how do we respond to those who wish us harm, right? How do we respond to our own temptations and our own brokenness and our own frailness, right? Like these are the the normal day-to-day questions that human beings are asking because this is the the broken world in which we live and ourselves, which are broken as well. And the wise are going to say, okay, God gives response. God gives an answer for how to live. The fool is going to say, forget all that. I'm going to do what I want to do. So scripture would say that apart from God, apart from a knowledge of God or knowing God and living as God defines life to be lived, wisdom cannot be found. And so what we see here in Psalm 53, as hard as it is for us to see, is that the natural default setting of the human heart, of your heart, of my heart, apart from the intervening grace of God, right, is is that we are going to be a naturally God-denying people. In fact, one commentator would say it this way, that, that since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve bit the fruit, that the juice of foolishness runs down our chins. That's what took place in that moment that they rebelled, that foolishness, that juice of foolishness ran down their chins and now runs down ours. That's our natural default setting, that we don't live as wise. We live as 
fools apart from the grace of God. And the rest of the story of humanity then is described in verse 3 when it says that they've all fallen away. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good. There's not even, there's not even one. Which means that apart from God and left to ourselves, the only fruit we bear is the fruit of corruption and the fruit of disobedience. This is the natural state of the human heart. This is our default setting. It's why parents never, ever have to teach their children how to disobey. Like it just comes instinctually, doesn't it? It just comes naturally to them. Um, when I first became a parent, my son Maddox, who's my oldest, when he, when he was getting about eight, nine months old, right? Like I remember thinking like, I remember asking myself, like, when am I going to know when, when I need to discipline him, right? Like, so, like, babies cry a lot, right? But they're not doing so out of, like, this rebellion. Like, like Maddox, when he was, like, four months old, was like, you know what I'm going to do right now? I'm going to cry because I know this would just get underneath dad's skin at four in the morning. Like, he's not thinking that. Like, they're, they're crying because they want something, right? So I remember thinking, like, when am I going to know in him, like, when he's, when he's crossing that line between this is just what a child does in infancy versus, like, now he's rebelling against me. And I remember thinking, like, how many, man, I just don't know. Is it going to be clear? And, and then just one day, it was like, oh, like, right now. Like, it, it was just that. It was like this, like, in this moment. Like, he just knew to completely rebel against what I was asking. I had never, up to that point, however old he was, sat him down and says, you know what, Maddox, there's coming a, a time when, when me as your father, I'm going to ask you to do stuff. And, and, and you're going to want to rebel. Now, you probably don't know what rebel is. Let me teach you what it means to rebel. Right? So I'm going to say, why don't you do this? Or, uh, and you're going to instantly do the, the, the opposite of what I ask. Or, um, or, or you're going to want to ignore me. Right? So well, what's ignore, Dad? Well, ignore. Here's how you ignore. Right? You, I, I tell you something, and, and you hear me, but you pretend and act like you don't. Oh, let me write this down so I know how to. Like, no parent has ever had to teach their kid that, right? They just do it instinctually, right? Parents spend the majority of their parenting journey teaching their children how to do right. Like if their kids need to write any notes down, it's like what obedience is, right? Because that doesn't come naturally to them. And, 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 and before we just pick on the kids here, let's pick on the adults. Don't we feel that within ourselves as well? Like when someone harms you, when someone hurts you, whether it be physically or emotionally or mentally, isn't your typical first knee-jerk response without even thinking, I need to hurt them back? How do I hurt them in return? Like, don't we still see, even as adults, grown adults, maturing adults, don't we still see even now our, like how we need God's word every single day to teach us, no, here's how you respond. Because that's, this is not going to come naturally to you. Your natural response is going to be, how do I hurt them back? Right? That we still need this every single day because our, our natural default state is, is we are anti-God. We drift into that, even though God is redeeming us and working in us. Don't we often have to settle our own minds and our hearts first to consider how do we need to respond to whatever situation is in front of us? Of course we do. Because our default setting, as I said, is, is sometimes practically or functionally atheist. There is no God in Macau. I, this is what I'm going to respond to. This is how I'm going to do it. This is why the gospel is, is so unavoidably confrontational. It's 
because the gospel confronts us with who we really are and what we really need. What we, when we come face to face with the gospel, we come face to face with our own foolishness and our own need for repentance, to change and to turn. And, and for those who hear the gospel and believe the gospel and then respond to the gospel through repentance and through faith in Christ, find wisdom, find eternal life as they gladly submit to his good reign and his good rule over their lives as their creator and as their savior. See, the, the story of us here begins with this understanding of our default setting. But, but as the story unfolds here, number two, we need to understand also then the, the fruit of foolishness. What is the fruit of, of our default state of heart? Verse four then exposes this. It exposes the, the fruit of a foolish heart when it says that there is no God. See, scripture clearly defines two kinds of people in the world today. They're either those who are righteous or those who are unrighteous. Now, we just saw in the first verse that all of humanity is born in this state of unrighteousness. And so we're going to see how to get to the, the righteous at the end of the psalm. But, but we can clearly see in verse 4 that the foolish, the fruit of foolishness is the oppression and the abuse of those who belong to God. Now, specifically, what, what we see in this psalm and throughout the scripture is that the typical fruit of, of the foolish is the oppression of God's people. The, the Christians today around the world are facing intense persecution. That there are brothers and sisters in different parts of the world right now who are being thrown into prison, ripped away from their families, tortured and killed for no other reason than they are Christ followers. And this has been the case since the time of Jesus. And Jesus clearly warned his disciples that this was coming. Jesus was very clear in Matthew 10 when he was speaking to his disciples and when he was sending them out, he said, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. He was saying to them and to all then who hear his words even today that, that, that would follow the path of Christ, that, that path is not one of ease. It's not going to be one of comfort. It's not going to be one of safety. It's going to be a path of trial and suffering and difficulty. Jesus said, the world hated me. They're going to hate you even more just because you're following me. Now, this makes sense then when we understand that the natural state of the human heart is anti-God. That God is a threat to humanity. God is a threat to humanity's sovereignty over their own lives. And so humanity, apart from the grace of God at work in them, doesn't want to submit to him doesn't even want to learn how to live with him, right? No, no, like humanity in our default state wants to destroy him, wants to bury him, which means destroy any of those who image him and who reflect him and who follow him. This is why there's oppression and persecution among Christians around the world today. There's a, the battle that we're in, battle that Christians face today, and we need to be clear that the battle Christians face today, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, is not between flesh and blood. It's not between us. It's not between our fellow man, but it's rather, Paul would say, it's against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil. It's, it's against spiritual forces in, in the heavens, Paul would say. That, that Satan, Jesus would say in John 10, is, is, his sole mission is to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he will work through evil and unregenerate hearts, rebellious and sinful and foolish humanity to accomplish his will. But he is ultimately the enemy. And as the church then, we must recognize that we're not living in peacetime. 
This is not peacetime for the church. The church, as we say so often here, is an outpost. It's an outpost of God's kingdom that's pushing back against spiritual darkness through the power of prayer and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we go as sent ones, we're making disciples along the way who will further reflect the hope and the light of Jesus. And as people are brought from darkness into light, that's where we begin to see cultural renewal and peace taking place as the gospel expands, as the kingdom of God expands. The enemy wants to distract the church from her mission. And he'll use any means necessary. He'll tempt us to to drift into self-righteousness and spiritual pride, thinking we're better than we are. We'll be distracted with the materialism and the the allure of the shiny things in the world. We'll we'll, we'll be tempted to look at each other as, as the enemy and to fight internally rather than recognizing the true nature of the battle in front of us. We'll be tempted to desire comfort and ease and just as hope that, can I just coast to the end? I just want to coast to the end rather than run with endurance the race that's set before us. Coasting sounds easier than running. See, the fruit of foolishness is the oppression of God's people. But it's also the, it's also the rejection of God's mission and God's glory. We can even fall prey to the foolishness by rejecting his call on the church's life. So we need to understand these things to understand our own story and understand where we are. Number three, we need to also then understand the consequences that come from this foolishness. Verse verse five is really hard to hear. There they are, it says, in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. This psalm, if it, was, if it was written today as a, as a modern song, it probably wouldn't make it on Christian radio. Just taking a guess there, right? Just taking a guess. Like we, we love to, to emphasize and sing about the love of God, right? And yes and amen. I am not dismissing that. Yes and amen, right? The love of God is, is greater far, right? The hymn says that, than tongues or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star, it reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care, God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Oh, love of God, right? How rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels song. Yes, let the church forever sing the praises about the love of God. Yes and amen. But let the church also forever sing the praises of his justice. The praises of his justice. The foolish, the ones who reject God, this verse says, will one day face the wrath of God. See, God's glory, God's name is what is uppermost in the universe. Which means then that any belittlement of the glory of his name, any belittlement of his name is deserving rightfully of eternal punishment. So our praise of God's justice is ultimately our coming into agreement that God's name is to be hallowed, it is to be worshiped, it is to be held uppermost as most glorious in all of the universe. And we need to come into an agreement that any rejection of God's holy name is to be met rightfully with God's justice, that this is good and this is right. 
Isaiah 42 eight, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to any carved idols. Right? He is deserving of eternal worship. He is worthy of it all, which means, as I said, any belittlement of his glory is to be met with his justice. So the mission of the church then is to zealously proclaim the glory of God's name. It's to herald the gospel so that those who are walking in foolishness, those who are walking in darkness, will be transferred into the kingdom of light and thus be saved from the wrath of God, which is to come. This verse, verse 5, clearly shows what awaits those who deny and continually rebel against the God of the universe. Right? Bones are shattered. This is why I said, probably want to make it on the radio today. Not many songs about God crushing bones, right? That God says they're, they're going to be put to shame. That God, their creator, listen, ultimately rejects them, verse 5 says. Think about that. That is the most terrifying place to be on the receiving end of God's rejection of you. See, we are to praise as the church. We praise God for his justice because this means ultimately all that is wrong in the world will be made right, right? A creation that was made to glory in God will one day return to its rightful place where God will dwell with his people and his people will walk with their God, which leads us to our fourth and final thing we need to understand when we talk about our story. We need to understand then God's restoration of his people. God's restoration of his people. You see, if verse 5 tells us what's going to happen to those who reject God, if it tells us what's going to happen to those who are foolish, verse 6 then is going to tell us what happens to those who are wise, those who belong to God. Verse 6 says, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. You see, Zion is synonymous with the city of, of, of David. Uh, it, it represents, anytime Zion is, is mentioned in Scripture, it's representing kind of the center of worship, the center of the, the presence of God. And so the psalmist is, is crying out here at the end of the psalm, crying out for salvation. Because, again, we're understanding the default setting of the human heart, understanding the consequences, understanding the fruit of foolishness, understanding that there is none who does good. And so the psalmist here is lastly crying out for salvation, crying out for deliverance, crying out for God's presence amongst them as they're surrounded by their their enemies david here trusted god here in this specific cultural moment here to, to trust god to save them from uh, their present calamity save them from those who are surrounding them that's what this verse talks to this salvation that god would deliver them from their enemies but again scripture always points outside of itself and so this verse is also pointing forward to the salvation that would ultimately come from Zion, which is today we look back and say it was Jesus, right? Jesus Christ, who is the presence of God in bodily form. This is where our salvation came from, right? Jesus came into this, this world. This ultimately then is our hope for our unrighteous, our foolish, our God-denying hearts that apart from God's grace, apart from Jesus and his salvation, that we would forever be under the wrath of God, facing his justice and his judgment. As I said a little bit ago, there's two types of people in the world today. There's the unrighteous and there's the righteous. Now, we all left to ourselves are unrighteous. It's only by the grace of God, grace alone and Christ alone, through faith alone, that we become righteous before him. 
Listen to this, this remarkable passage from Ephesians 2 that shares and tells us and speaks of that truth. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's, there's, there's our default setting, right? But God, here's verse 6 in Psalm 53, that says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hear that good news today. Hear that good news today. Be reconciled with God through no work of your own, but through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is the story of, of us. This is the story of what God is doing why we are who we are, why we live and act the way that we do, why we see the brokenness in the world around us. This is the story of humanity since Genesis 3, but it's also the story of where we find hope and where we find healing. And the beauty of humanity's story is that God is weaving himself into that story. It, the, the beauty that God is doing is that, that God has written himself into the story of humanity. Like, this is what Jesus has done. He gave up, Jesus gave up the, the rights. God the Son, who is perfect and, 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 and fully God from eternity past, and in total good communion, right communion and fellowship and worship with God the Father and God the Spirit, right? It says in Philippians 2 that Jesus gave up that privilege, gave up the, the rights and the privileges of heaven. It says, came to earth, right? Wove himself into our story. He was born of a woman. He was born in the likeness of men, born in the form of a servant. God entered our story and provided a way for us to be righteous, to be right. Fools are going to reject this truth, Scripture says. The wise will gladly hear and receive and accept this good news and rejoice in it and then go sharing it. So I, I close this morning by just simply asking this, where are you in, in this story today?